Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping product managers become product masters. Listen and get ready to take your career to the next level for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders and managers make their move to product masters, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create products customers love. Now you're in for a delightful and important discussion with our guest today. She was named a top 100 leadership speaker of 2018 and is here to tell us how we can have a happier workplace. Is there anyone who doesn't want that? Maybe you are the one in a million person who says, my workplace is happy enough. It provides all the enjoyment and contentment I need. Okay, but for the rest of us, I bet you would appreciate feeling significant in your organization, knowing that the work you do truly matters, being an environment that feels safe and one where you belong, and coming home energized and not worn out after a rough day. We'll spend more of our waking hours at work than anywhere else. Think about that. Those hours should be great, even awesome. And now let's find out how to make that happen with our guest, Chris Besh. She's the CEO of Choose People, a group that helps organizations build extraordinary workplace cultures. Please check out the show notes at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 205. There you'll find a written summary of our discussion. Now to the discussion. Chris, thanks so much for joining the Everyday Innovators. Thanks for having me, Chad. Really excited to be here. So we got connected through a previous guest who said that Chris is awesome and you need to talk to her. And then I looked up your profile and I saw that you are a top 100 leadership speaker named this year in uh, Inc. Magazine. And I can I appreciate why, because you're addressing a really kind of heartfelt issue for a lot of people, which is how do we make our workplaces a better place, really a happy place where we feel hopefully more energized and connected to and engaged in. How did your work in this area come about? Um, you know, Chad, it's interesting. Uh, it came about when I was asked to lead a moving company, of all things. Mm-hmm. And this is years and years and years ago. Um, at, gosh, 2002, 2003. And the culture that I came into was so toxic um, that people were literally yelling obscenities at each other. And not that like, yo, yo, we're tight way, but like, I'm going to take you out back where the sun doesn't shine. Right. Like, it was not good. And um, we were struggling to cover payroll, right? Mm-hmm. So there was a huge financial impact. And um, I didn't know squat about culture. In fact, culture wasn't even in the business vernacular. Hmm. Right, like that wasn't even really. So I reached out to mentors and read books and asked a lot of questions, and kind of the skies opened up, which is always lovely, and the light shined down. And I was like, oh my gosh, if my people feel good about coming to work, they'll take good care of my customers, who in turn will take care of the financial health of the organization. And so, in the midst of this crisis, in which we didn't have money, um, and our people were really pissed off for a whole bunch of different reasons, I was like, okay, I'm going to focus on the employee experience. That's what I called it at the time. Um, and, and I didn't have money to throw at them. So it really was like, how do I have it where they feel good about coming to work? Mm -hmm. Like this emotional health context piece. And, uh, and, and that's what I focused on. And we got to where we had, um, 40% less turnover than the industry average and a bottom line twice that same average. And so, and that was in like a year's time. I was like, holy moly, why aren't more organizations focusing on this? And that's when I did, um, it was it was years a few years later when I was really wanting to create this that I was like, okay, how can I take what I've learned and apply it beyond 
just this one company, right? right. Like, so companies of different geographies, yeah. different white collar, blue collar sizes. Yeah. And will it work anywhere else? Right, exactly. And and ended up doing over a thousand hours of research with the industrial organizational psychology department at Colorado State University to find out what makes employees feel good about coming to work mm-hmm. and how do you measure it. And that um, and once that research was complete, that's when I opened the doors um, to choose people in 2010. And I've been doing this work ever since for eight years with, like you name it, construction companies, retail engineers, law firms. Um, it just senior living, like it just runs the gamut, higher education, right. government, which I didn't know I'd end up working with. And it's just been, um, yeah, it's been extraordinary. I just, I really feel like a lucky duck, Chad. <laughs> like I really, I just love what I do. I really feel like a lucky duck. Well, yeah. Good job kind of stumbling into a need and then taking that need and using it to help others, right? From what you learned yeah. from that. So that's excellent. Yeah. You know, one of the topics that comes up when we get into you know, how, how do we make our work environment better? Mm. When I started working, this, this was quite some time ago, the, there was this issue of work-life balance. And I would have people tell mm. me, you know, well, you need to just disengage when you leave the office and kind of mentally change how you think about things. And frankly, that's just never set right for me. Maybe I'm wired differently. I always looked at it as more, there's just this integration in life. I, You know, the stuff I do at home impacts what I do at work. And what I do at work impacts what I do at home. And I'm always kind of thinking about both parts of my life. It's not like one disappears. Yeah. So I'm just curious to get your take on that, this issue of kind of work-life balance versus an integrated perspective. Yeah. So, Chad, you and I are very aligned in that um, I actually, I tell folks, like, listen, this whole idea of work-life balance is an absolute crock. Hmm. And the reason is, is if you think about it on average, people are working 2,000 hours every single year in their workplace. And like, that's 2,000 hours of your life, mm-hmm. right? Like work is a part of life. And so this, there's this consideration of what would it look like to self-actualize who I want to be in the world through my work as part of my life. And so that's always the consideration is like, and I even say to those who are managing teams, you know, if you have eight people on your team, that's 16,000 hours of human contribution every single year that you are guiding, right? that you are mentoring, that you are supporting, that you are coaching, you know, all those different pieces and to not take that seriously in a level of urgency and to allow anyone on your team to just like clock in, right? Is to not really honor the, you know, the life force, if you will, right. that, that is in your hands. Yeah. And so that's, um, that's something that, you know, if you, if anyone ever is in an organization where they are just clocking in, like there's something to be done. Yeah. There's something not satisfying about the experience. Yeah. And I've had that mindset at times where I say, okay, this is going to be what I do so I can enjoy life on the weekends. Right. And, it's, mm, and the weekend warriors. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I would much rather find the work fulfilling, mm-hmm. because that is a lot of our time out of our, out of each day. That's the majority of what we're doing with other people is in that work environment. Right. And this gets into a issue of culture. And yes. I know everyday innovators that, that we would all love to be part of an environment, especially the teams that we're a part of that just work better, right? That we walk into and they just feel more enjoyable. And you have this book called Culture Works, How to Create Happiness in the Workplace. Mm-hmm. Gosh, who, who doesn't want more happiness, right? And higher results in the process. I'm curious about how, how we can kind of evaluate where we are now mm. and, and take a reasonable assessment of our current state as, as a maybe an individual or a team. Well, so there's a, there's a couple different ways. Some are more statistically valid than others, right? So, but the, um, 
one, I will say, and thank you for mentioning my book. We actually do have our culture audit in the book um, such that you can take the assessment and find out for yourself, you know, where you land and your experience of your workplace culture. Now, granted, you probably already know that for yourself, but we're always all curious about like, well, if I take the survey, what's, what's the survey says, right? Mm-hmm. Like that. However, yeah, and I really, I get that your, your listeners are project managers and there's a question they can ask themselves and that they, they can ask their team members to just kind of, I call it a litmus test, okay. right, just to kind of get a sense of where their team is at. And, um, and that question is very simply, hey, on a scale of one to 10, how happy or unhappy are you about coming to work, right? Super simple. Um, and what's, what's intriguing is that when I ask this question, especially of those who are in leadership and management, and I realize some of your project managers fall into that category. Sure. Everyone's managing a team at, you know, for the project. But the, um, usually 80% of the time, I'll have where people will respond with seven. Hmm. And what's interesting about seven is that it usually means like either, you know, things are good, they're good enough, they're okay. It might even be like, meh, <laughs> like, but no one's going to go postal, which I'm like, hey, high five, like, <laughs> right. we make that happen, good we, job. We got that going for us. <laughs> we, got, we got that going for us. And no one's clamoring to work here. Like, no one's just like sharing with their friends how much they love it and it's amazing and they feel they feel really lucky or however that looks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you do have, you do have about, you know, five to 10% that say, you know, eight, nine or 10. And and I would suggest that really does speak to, you know what, I really do enjoy working here. Mm -hmm. I really do. And then for those organizations that say, you know, or individuals or teams that say less than seven, there's usually some challenges. There's some culture challenges that, that aren't being dealt with, aren't being faced. And, and really, if you get less than five, and granted, I, I get that some of those folks out there are just super analytical and they're like, my five is my seven, right? right. But um, it, it usually means, right, that you're starting to get into toxic levels when you get below five. Yeah. And, um, and so one of the things that I will say is that the book – really is intended for those organizations that are a seven, right? For those organizations who are like, we're good, but we want to be off the hook amazing. Right. And one of the things I'll, I'll share is that there's, if you're less than a seven, chances are you have to do some, you have to do some cleanup and repair before you start building. Hmm. You can't just like, people need to let go of the past. People need to get over it. People, blah, 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 blah. like the more you say that, the more people dig in their heels and right. they're like, I'm not going anywhere. Right. <laughs> like I'm pissed. There are some conflicts there that have, have yeah. been brewing and you need to step into them and, and work through the conflicts. Right. And then I guess the last piece I'll just say, if you are, if, if your organization really is looking at taking the culture thing seriously, such that you really want to be able to assess statistically validate, you know, assess you know, choose people offers a whole culture audit process. Hmm. So I'll just throw that in the mix. Okay. So yeah. you, you can do an assessment to really get a good handle on the metrics where you are right now. Right. And also identify probably the next steps to take based on that assessment. Yeah. That's, it's a whole kit and caboodle, but just for the, you know, for the short term, if you just want to do a litmus test, mm-hmm. but if you're like, yeah, I want to get the actual, I'm curious, you know, my perception versus reality, then that's when you would look at the diagnostic and all that. Okay. Yeah. As you're talking about that one to 10 scale, Gallup, I don't know if they do this every year or not, but the employee engagement survey. Yeah. And the last few results have always been on the order about about a third, about 33% or so, right? Mm. Somewhere between 30 and 40% employees say, yeah, I feel engaged at work. 
Mm -hmm. Wow, that means there's a whole lot of people that don't, that that are generally dissatisfied with the work atmosphere. Which is heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Think about it. I'll just share with you, Chad. There was, I'll never forget. I'll never forget. I um, met with this woman, was sharing with her about our culture audit, sharing how we measure, do your employees feel good about coming to work? It is this emotional health that we're measuring. And she looked at me and she said, really? She's like, that's what you measure. And she's like, not engagement, not satisfaction. And I said, no, we literally measure, do you feel good about coming to work? And her eyes just got so wide. And I was like, what, like, why? And she said, she said, Chris, I kid you not. The last place where I worked, there would be days I would be driving to work and wish I would get in an accident Mm. rather than arrive to work. Yeah. And like, I just remember just feeling punched in the gut and just feeling like that's not okay. Like that's just not okay. It doesn't have to be that way, right? Right. Like this isn't all the stuff we talk about, everything that we do at Choose People, absolutely not. It's not about like spending hordes of money. It's not about, you know, these huge raises for everyone. It's not about like, it really is like, how do you create an empowering context within which people can be happy, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's like the energy force field when you walk in, What's the air your team is breathing while running your marathon? Like, what's that experience? Is it, you know, is it Disney or is it, you know, the DMV, (laughs) you know, where it's like soul sucking? You're like, no. Exactly. Yeah. If you hop out of bed every morning excited to be going and working with the people you get to work with, it's a whole different experience. And unfortunately, Chris, I've heard exactly the same story. You know, people, Mm. you know, it hasn't been often, but people say, you know, if I get out of a car accident today, that would probably be a better day. Oh, my word. Oh, oh. So it's so the topic of – I know. Yeah. The topic of culture here, mm-hmm. I've always placed a high value on culture. And I don't know if it was Peter Drucker's first article for, with this title, but there's been a few articles out, right, that will say something like, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Yeah. And I went, yes. The first time I saw that, I went, <laughs> absolutely, mm-hmm. right? Because culture is kind of this magical element that makes organizations ha- better places to work in and perform better in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's some of these award-winning culture organizations like Zappos gets talked about a lot or uh, SAS or Google. Mm-hmm. What is involved in creating an extraordinary culture, which could be a whole topic by itself, but l- let's mm-hmm. dive into a few aspects of that. Yeah. So here's, here's, Chad, what I have learned over the years is that, again, right, we – there is this idea that culture is the secret sauce. And I will say part of the secret sauce is strategy, right? Being in a culture where there's no strategy, strategy is maddening. Yeah. Right? So, and a, a, a quick um, point on that, just, I'm curious how you think yes, about this too, Chris, yes. I, they, they go together, mm-hmm. but I see, you know, strategy, it, it's decisions that we make about a direction we're going. And if we get it wrong, we get it wrong and we have to change our strategy. Mm-hmm. The organizations that have the right culture can make that change happen quickly. Yes. The, the organizations that don't have the right culture, boy, is that hard. It's like this painful slog. We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute. This episode of The Everyday Innovator is brought to you by Product Innovation Educators, your one place for online training to make the move from product manager to product master. When you enroll in one of our online courses, it's like having Chad McAllister as your personal coach. In each course, you get video lessons, added resources, and a private community for collaboration with other product managers and innovators. And, of course, you get direct access to Chad, who will answer your questions and get you heading in the right direction. Past students tell us the concepts, practices, and tools are valuable, but the real benefits they gain are being more confident, 
increasing their influence in their organization, and generating greater success for themselves and their company. There are four levels of training to become a product master. Find your level now. Get started by going to the everydayinnovator.com forward slash master. Your one place to become a product master. The everydayinnovator.com forward slash master. Don't wait. Get started now. Let's talk about the secret sauce. Yeah, you and I are on the same page. Culture is the secret sauce, but what I've found over the years is like there's this secret ingredient that really does get you from seven to eight. Okay. Right, or seven to nine. And this ingredient really is what I call emotional intimacy. Hmm. And there's a piece where, you know, people will be like emotional intimacy in the workplace. Like if I go to my HR person and I'm like, we need emotional intimacy. Like they're going to slap me outside the head and be like, have you not been aware of what's in the news? You know? And so, so one of the things I say is that you can always couch it as camaraderie, right? And basically this experience of team cohesion. Mm-hmm. And there's these kind of these three pillars that go into creating that emotional intimacy. And that is where everyone on the team feels like they're known. So known where like, you know me as a person and you care about me as a person matter. So my contribution matters. If I go above and beyond, it matters. And if I slack, it matters. Right. And then included, right. This sense of belonging, this sense of um, being part of a team and united and we're like, we have each other's backs mm. and I'm part of the inner circle, right? So it's, um, and there's also a shared identity within that as well. But so I always say like to have an extraordinary workplace culture, your people have to feel like they're known, they matter and they're included. And that really is, that gets you to the next level. And like I was saying before, if I went to my movers back in the day and I was like, we're going to create emotional intimacy, <laughs> They would have told me to sit and spin. <laughs> like it would not have, you know, because we had cleanup to do. We had a whole foundational base that we had to get. Like there was all sorts of stuff that we had to get cleaned up first. Mm. Um, so, and so that's why I always just say, I always like to preface this that while that will get you to, it'll get you to that eight. But if you're not at a seven, there's that cleanup to do first. So I don't know if you talk about this in your book. And for everyday innovators, I, I have kind of this purposeful habit of not reading books before I talk to guests mm. if they've written a book because I want it to be fresh and new to me too. And then I always try to find the, you know, get the book later and then look through it because I get really excited about the, what we talk about. You said something specific that, you know, that takes you from level seven to eight at that level. Mm-hmm. And as you're talking about that, I thought of Maslow's hierarchy. And I don't know if you connect to that in the book or not, but mm-hmm. Maslow's hierarchy expresses that we need our needs met at the level that we're at at the moment before we even think about the next level of needs. And in the middle of his pyramid is the social level. And the social level talks about, you know, we need to feel like we're part of something that's important, that we're, we're doing something that matters, that our contributions actually matter to this bigger picture, you know, some, some bigger mission. Yeah. And when it comes to our products, that simply means we're working on a, a product or a product revision, a new iteration that matters to our customers, that, you know, creates some value that we feel some kind of attachment to. Mm-hmm. And we're doing it in the context of a social environment with people that we enjoy being with. And we have established some rapport in this camaraderie. Yeah. Then once we have all, all those things in place, then maybe we, you know, move up to the next level in, in the Maslow hierarchy. Mm-hmm. But I thought that was interesting how you talk about that. I don't, I don't know if you make connections to that kind of, you know, motivational theory uh, in your book. Yeah, also. I mean, I think it, I think it maps with it really clearly. And it's, and it's one of those things where one of the things in the book 
that is near the beginning and I don't spend a whole lot of time there, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't, right? And again, as soon as I say it, I just see an audience put a fork in their eye. <laughs> but I have to share it. And that is the idea of like, you have to have your mission, vision, and values nailed yeah. down and have them be alive and well in your organization. Because that mission piece, that warm, gooey center, the warm fuzzy that like gives you goosebumps when you speak to it and literally write three words that just lights you up and gets you up in the morning and has you excited about the product that you're making or whatever right. project you're working on because you see how it's connected. Right. And again, I don't spend too much time there because a lot of people have done a lot of work and said a lot of good things about it. And so they're, you know, but, but it is one of those, if your organization, if, if I was to ask you what's your mission and you, you don't know it off the top of your head such that it's powerful for you, mm-hmm then your team doesn't either, yeah. right? Like it's not available to them. And it really is such a cornerstone to that mattering piece, to that second experience. And it aligns all the way down to the individual projects that this is a project that has value, right? Yeah. Those of us who have been on a project that gets killed halfway through, mm-hmm. okay, now sometimes we're really relieved and we say, oh, you know, thank you. <laughs> but a lot of times like, man, all that work I just did for nothing. Yeah. So I, I like that. So your emotional intimacy, which we might rename as camaraderie, everyone feels they're known. Everyone matters. They know how their contribution matters. And you talked about a mutual accountability aspect of that, how if they don't you know, contribute, how that matters too. Yeah. And that everyone is included, that they, they feel like they're, they're part of a group that belongs. Yeah. They belong to. Okay. Really good elements there of a powerful culture. There is a topic I saw as I was looking through your website and getting some background information there about interdependency awareness. Mm-hmm. Tell us what that is. Interdependency awareness. So if your organization struggles with silos, right, or where the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing, or our department works harder than that department, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, like, or um, any of those areas where people don't really know what other people do. Or um, just the sense of like each department is really, right, again, that's the silos piece, right? They're really connected with what they do, but not with what the rest of the team does. And there's not even a consideration of what's best for the organization. Right. It's often like what's best for our department. And you have those types of conversation. Um, so interdependency awareness is this really, right, it's just, it's incredibly powerful because what it creates is you really get as an individual in the organization that your piece is mission critical to the whole Mm -hmm. and that the whole is mission critical to each piece. And so just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about is um, for those of you who are around my age, who played the mousetrap game as a kid. And for those of you who don't know what the mousetrap game is, it's basically a Rube Goldberg machine. And if you don't know what that is, it's like this really complex system to accomplish a simple task. So in the mousetrap game, as kids, you would get together and you'd put all, you get all your pieces and you'd make this crazy contraption with these tubes and these wheels and these buckets and this little diver dude and like the whole nine yards, all with the intention to trap the mouse. Right. And right. And, and so then, um, and as kids, you would fight over the silver ball, right? Like who got to put the silver ball because bar none, the silver ball was the sexiest piece in the puzzle. Cause it was the thing that got to go through the whole contraption. Mm-hmm. And, um, and using that analogy, there's this idea that, you know, the silver ball without all the, all the other pieces is completely inconsequential, has absolutely no value 
without all the other pieces of the, you know, of the team, if you will. And if one of the pieces of the team is like, meh, I'm not really feeling it today. (laughs) Like I'm not going to show up or I'm going to be three centimeters off. Like you're not going to catch the mouse. Right. Right. So there's all of a sudden there's this awareness of both how important my role is to us being successful, but also like I'm not alone. I'm, I have no value. I can't like, so great. I'm in payroll and I, you know, I'm in tra- like, but there's no one to pay. <laughs> like, okay. You know, or whatever that looks like. And so it really brings value and understanding to my role as well as the roles of other people on my team, as well as other departments. And mm-hmm. there's actually, there's a whole exercise that you can do with your team that really only takes like 10 to 15 minutes. That just grounds that. And mm-hmm. then you can actually start even getting into, you know, you could have a longer discussion about the the specific departments in your own organization and talking about, so who do I impact, right? And how can I support them better and ask them, how can I support you better? And right. then who impacts me and what requests do I have of them Right, such that they could make my job easier, right? right. And there's this, this sense of like we're uh, this interdependency. We're all connected in this system together to accomplish this mission. Yeah, and you just said I was going to say this is systems thinking from the way that I approach yes. it. Yes, you know, instead of these yeah. silos, we're in an organization that's an integrated system. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us have seen. I, I've seen it firsthand when I was a member of an executive team. How the independent functions, you know, like we have sales, we have marketing, we have development actually were working against each other in terms of meeting the overall objectives mm-hmm. because they weren't operating as a system, right? They were meeting their individual objectives, which at times hurt the overall objective, right? Right. A while ago, this was back in, let me see here, episode 176, I interviewed uh, Fred Kaufman. He was the executive I love leader. Fred. You know Fred? Okay, I, mean, I don't so, know him, but I love his work. But, like, yeah. Yeah, the, the Meaning Revolution was a, a book that he did. Yeah. And he was the executive de- in charge of executive development at Facebook. And now he's a fellow at Google in charge of executive development, which is pretty cool, right? You're, yeah. you're helping the very best you know, senior people there even get better. And he started off with a question with me and he said, yeah, okay, you're on a soccer team. What does the goalie do? I said, um, the goalie's job, okay, I know a little bit about soccer, not a lot, but I think the goalie's job is to not let the ball go into the goal. And he said, no. I said, the goalie's job is to help the team win. Mm. Whatever your role is on the soccer team, your job is to help the team win. Mm. And I, that, I thought that was a pretty good perspective to think yeah. of, you know, whatever our function is, there's this overall mm-hmm. mission of the organization, our objectives, that that's really what we're contributing to. What a great analogy. I love that. Love yeah. that. Thank you, you. You should run with that one now. Okay. Yeah. I'll be like, Fred Kaufman. <laughs> Per Chad McAllister. (laughs) (laughs) Use it. He did not invent soccer, I'm sure. So, yeah, this issue of silos is really good. So, the the interdependency awareness that our work connects to other work. Mm -hmm. And maybe if we think of the others in our organization as our customers, that might help us embrace more of a systems perspective, too. Mm, Yeah. Okay, there's one other topic that we were talking about a little bit earlier before we started the interview. I really wanted to get your take on this because we all need help with this some of the time. Mm. We don't always meet our deadlines and things get in the way and Mm. we have too much work to do. And you said, well, there is a way that you can actually use a scapegoat. And I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. Uh, let's talk about that. Okay. Well, and now I'm I'm concerned. Maybe I gave you a false, like it's so it's on the other side of it. So bear with me. So, okay, if I'm, good. so if I'm a project manager and I have this team that I'm trying to mobilize 
to meet this deadline, uh-huh. one of the things that I see that is the ultimate scapegoat in organizations, and it's socially acceptable, and it's also a social epidemic, is this idea of time poverty. Hmm. Right. So there's this idea that um, we're all overwhelmed. There's not enough hours in the day. We have a zillion things to do. I'm so busy. I couldn't get right. Like our language just Chris, vomits. We, exactly. <laughs> we say that all the time. All, I don't have time for that. I don't have time for that. I'm busy. I have too much on my plate. Like all the things that and, and here's the thing, if, especially if you're leading a team, your team is a reflection of you. Okay. Right. So if you find yourself saying things like that, you have just given your team absolute permission to say those same things. And they will, right? Because you've actually demonstrated as a person in authority that that's, that's acceptable, it's permissible, the mm-hmm. whole nine yards. And so here's what I would offer is to be really thoughtful about your language such that, right? Like, because here's the thing, you are not a victim of time. And just, you know, this is my own alligator that I wrestle on a semi-regular basis. And sometimes I'm winning, (laughs) sometimes he's winning. But as soon as I find myself feeling overwhelmed or not having enough hours in the day or blah, 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 I have to stop and be like, you know what? I am not a victim of time. Like we all have 24 hours in a day. We all have seven days a week. It is the grand equalizer. And I get to choose how I'm going to spend my time. Right? I'm going to choose how I'm going to leverage that time. And this isn't about time management. This is really a mindset shift such that with your team, there's, there is tremendous clarity on, okay, how are we going to choose to spend our time? What are we committed to accomplishing? And, and how are we going to chunk that out such that it gets accomplished? And we're giving our word to this and not allowing you know all the squirrels and all the the chaos that we create for ourselves and even all the procrastination and all the time that we spend telling other people how we don't have enough time, right? Like right. it's, it's this interesting, um, people will actually bond over kvetching, right? This is the one of the well, ways that's rumble most, together. Yeah. And this <laughs> is one of the ways where that's most common is that people will bond over how overwhelmed they are. It's really mm-hmm. strange. And so that's, that's one of the things that you just want to shift your team and be like, we are not victims here. We get to decide how this is going to go. And right. so let's, let's create this together and make it happen. And it's, um, and you just really, really, really have to be conscientious, especially as the project manager that you're not using that language. Cause then like you've lost, you will not hit that deadline. Right. It, like, it's really good. Yeah. My kids are 13 and 16, and we were just talking the other day about one of my kids was dissatisfied with the situation. Mm. And I said, we are McAllisters. We make the best of whatever situation we are in. (laughs) I love it. uh, (laughs) Just, you know, there's always something there. And I love this idea of like, we're McAllisters, right? Because that's that shared identity. Like, we belong, and this is who we are, and this is what we're about, and this is what we're a stand for. I love that. That's it, T. McAllister. Okay. Yeah. Listeners know I love innovation quotes, and I asked you to bring one for us and tell us why that's important to you. So my innovation quote is, if you don't play, you can't win. And I don't know who created that quote, but I have been operating from that quote for years. And when I'm nervous about taking a risk, when I'm hesitant, 
it is the thing that gets me unstuck and has me jump in and be all in and be creative and be innovative and try something on that's a little scary Mm -hmm. or has me vulnerable or I don't know all the pieces, right? And there's just a willingness to be like, you know what, if I don't get on the field and, and, and try it out, like, yeah, I might get bruised. I might write like all the things, but at the end of the day, if I don't play, I can't win. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You got, got to be in the game for anything to happen. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And sometimes that means moving into areas that are a bit uncomfortable at first, yes. but that's how we all grow, yeah. right? Yeah. Everything we've learned was uncomfortable at first until we learned you it. You know, I'll, I'll share with you with that. It's someone talked about at one point, expanding your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Within that same, not about getting outside of your comfort zone, because who wants to do that? <laughs> but like, what's it look like to expand your comfort zone? Right. And I just love that with that same idea of kind of that growth mindset that you're speaking to. That ties in a lot of, you know, kind of the underlying theme of this is expanding that influence too, right? Mm-hmm. Over, I want to be a happier employee because I know that's good for me. Yeah. I want to work with a team where everyone is happy because that's good for all of us. Mm-hmm. I, I want to work with my larger function. I want to work in an organization, right? Where yeah. we're all just feeling good about working together and what we're doing. Mm-hmm. So really good. And that takes me back to, you know, everyone feels they're known. Everyone matters. Everyone feels included. Yeah. So good elements in our team interactions, I think, to remember. Yeah. Really good information. I do want listeners to know how to find out about your book because you go into more details in Culture Works, how to create happiness in the workplace. And also, I know you have a ton of wonderful resources on your website. Tell people how we can get a hold of that information and reach out to you if they have any questions, want to make uh, contact with you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And there are, like, I have Action Jackson tangible tools. That's kind of my nature on how you can actually create that experience of known, matter, and included um, Mm. that's in the book, right? So, but you can get that on Amazon. You can also get it on my website, which is simply choosepeople.com. Mm-hmm. there's um, a book. And if you are leading a team, there's also a workbook hmm. um, that people have found really powerful to use in conjunction. And so, um, and that's, you can find it on Amazon. It takes a little bit more effort. Um, or again, you can just get it off our site, okay. free shipping, all, you know, all the same goodness. So. Excellent. So that's choosepeople.com. Best place to go to find out resources and find out about you. Yes. Very good. I will make sure that is in the show notes for listeners. Chris, I appreciate your time. I like the movement that you are on in helping all of us have a better workplace and be happy employees. Thank you so much for having me, Chad. Thanks again for listening. I really do appreciate that you do and that you tell others about this podcast too. This is The Everyday Innovator, where product leaders and managers make their move to product masters, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create products customers love. Find the written notes of the discussion with Chris at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 205. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit our blog at theeverydayinnovator.com.